Okay, everybody, here we are. It's lunch therapy interview Friday already. Come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. Yes, it is interview Friday. Um, I have my Spawn Till You Die shirt on. Um, we've got foop and poof here because it's uh, very intrinsic to the show today, which is an interview with Ray De Laurentiis, who worked for a long while on the Fairly, fairly Odd Parents. But right now we're gonna take in a breath we're going to take in three breaths, even. Here we go. First one. Hold it. Let it out. Yes. This is important. Yes. We're going to take in another deep breath. Hold it. We're going to let it out. We're gonna take in another deep breath. Foop and poof included. Take it in and let it out. Yes, the Spawn Till You Die shirt is, a, is an Alaska thing. Uh, Ray Troll, fantastic artist, does these shirts. Uh, I was able to, to get one recently. I've got the headphones on, so that means we're going to dive into Interview Friday. Uh, looking forward to it because Ray De Laurentiis is a font of creativity and a font of information. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. And here he is. Today, we're lucky enough to be sitting here with Ray De Laurentiis, who is a writer and a, a creative person who has been working his entire life writing for television and for movies. And uh, we're going to pick his brain here and learn some stuff. Hey, Ray, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. So nice to have you here. So, um, yes. So I wanted, first of all, I wanted to find out like, where, where are you from and how did you get into this business? Are you from Los Angeles or did you come from someplace else? Okay, well, I, I grew up in Southern New Jersey um, on the beach, basically. The, yeah. beach, the beach where it snows in the winter. And um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, uh, basically I came to what I, I, I do now or I've been doing for many years uh, through kind of a circuitous route. I started off in school in Washington, DC where I thought I was gonna study to become a trial lawyer. I uh, spent about a half an hour in a law school class and literally found myself running across the camp. So what happened was um, I found myself halfway through undergraduate school and I started making choices at that time, basically based on lifestyle. So I love yeah. New York City, uh, always was a Knicks and a Mets fan and I love the city. So I basically went to NYU film school um, to be in New York. So I went <laughs> to film school and, and, and when I went at the time, it was really like an art school. I mean, it was only, it was only NYU and uh, 
and USC were the only two schools in the, in the country that actually made movies in school. Um, you know, it was like the golden age of dinosaurs for film schools. And so it's so long ago. And so I went and I made some movies and what happened, um, cut me off at any point if I'm giving you too much information. No, no, this is great. It's always good. Uh, I, I, you're basically, if you're going to make a film as a senior at NYU undergrad, you have to write a script and it has to be approved because only like one out of five people get to make a movie. So I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll, um, you know, I'll write a script. So I wrote a script that was apparently, according to my professors and everyone else, um, way, way better than the other scripts. But I think the reason is because the other scripts were so horrendously bad. Well, I um, find, I don't know about you, but I find when I've ever been in, you know, theater school or film school, yeah. a lot of times the, the scripts in school are just weird. Like they're very like avant-garde or they don't yeah. have a beginning, a middle and an end. Right. And I don't know what that is. I don't know whether people are just trying to like right off the bat, just trying to be different or whether they just, we haven't learned the structure of things yet. Well, well I think that what at NYU, the deal at NYU was that, that, that you know, it was, it was film students were sort of, they were sort of ahead, of ahead of their time in that they were obsessed with themselves. And so, <laughs> and, and so, so all these movies were these, you know, ridiculous, personal, pretentious movies about their own deep feelings, which yeah. weren't universal in any way. Uh -huh. And um, so at any rate, I, once I actually got my script approved, I didn't really care about directing it or anything. I just thought, well, at least I'm, 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 I can compete with these people who are sort of in, in a higher end in terms of an elite group of people who want to do this. So I worked on a movie in New York and a, as a PA, and I ended up coming out to Los Angeles, um, and I took a job on St. Elsewhere as a production assistant, which is an uh, ancient- One of my favorite show. shows, though. I mean, yeah, and, and so I came out, and, and um, what happened was, long story short, I thought, well, I don't want to be a production assistant. And, I, and it looked like writing was a way to get into the business. Once again, pure lifestyle choice. Wanted to live in California. Didn't want to go work at a company. Didn't want to go stand around a water cooler and talk about something boring all day. So I wanted yeah. to do something fun. And this seemed fun. So um, I talked to the, the producer, the executive producer, Bruce Paltrow, who was a super powerful, big time producer back in the days. And I said to him, um, how do I get a chance to write a script? And so he said to me, he said, write down these two scenes, come back tomorrow and give me the two scenes written, leave them on my desk, I'll talk to you at lunch. Really? So, so I said, said okay. So um, everyone said I was crazy because I you know, didn't have a writing sample and I wasn't a writer's assistant. And, but I said, well, I don't really care. I mean, to step back, I never really cared about the entertainment business in terms of what anyone thought of me or if I'd ever be successful in it. Cause I didn't really, I didn't have a great deal of respect for the business. I just like being creative. So, yeah. so at any rate, I, I wrote two scenes and left them on his desk. I came in at lunchtime, and he was sitting in this giant office at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore Studios, at the back of the room. And next to his desk was, um, was, a, was, a, was a stuffed dog named Stay. That was a stuffed collie that was Lassie's stand-in. No way. So, yeah, so I'm sitting there with this <laughs> mammoth man glaring at me with his stuffed dog next to him. And he picks up one of the scenes, and he says, Raymond, this scene here, is perhaps one of the worst written scenes I have ever read in my life. And he threw it over my head into the hallway. And I started to laugh. And I he said, did. well, listen, thanks very much for taking the time to read the material anyway. And he laughed back and he said, okay, basically you have the balls to do this. You weren't broken by the fact that I told you this scene sucked. He said, it wasn't that bad. He said, the other scene's very, very good. And perhaps you can, you know, work, write, write a script with somebody. So do you think the I, reason that you didn't take it personally is because you came at this business, not from a, like a, I've got yeah. to do it kind of standpoint that you came as like more of a practical kind of thing? Well, I, I came to it because, because I mean, honestly, 
you know, I, I have a love of being creative. I have a love yeah. of being a free spirit. That's cool. uh, you know, and, and, and those aspects of it, I did love. And I really yeah. did like writing. I thought it was fun. Yeah. Um, but I think it's because I never really, I mean, listen, I don't ever want to offend anybody. And if I do something that upsets someone, I'm completely accountable to that always. Yeah. But in terms of random people having an opinion about me, mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of know I'm a really good person. And, yeah. and my feeling is I, I just don't have that big of an ego. So ironically, not having that big of an ego helps you sort of absorb things like that. My, my feeling at the time was, well, this is the first thing I've written since, since film school and I can only get better if I want to do it. <laughs> um, so it's like, what's the big deal? You know, it's just like be in the moment, be in the day and, uh, and see where you go, you know? So, so what happened was long, really long story short, I did that and I started doing work. I didn't want to be an hour television because I didn't like the lifestyle. It was, you know, you never saw anybody. You were alone for weeks on end writing scripts. Um, uh, I got, I did some feature work with my brother who's older and a very successful writer. And he asked me to work with him because he was impressed with my work, I guess. And he loves me. So we did a bunch of stuff together. We wrote movies together. Didn't really like the movie lifestyle because it took too long. And you were, you were disconnected from everything for six months. And by the time you wrote the script, the people who hired you were all fired or in a new company. And yeah. so during that time, I wrote a kids and family pilot, which made me laugh. And I liked the state of mind I was in writing. It was sort of goofy, but smart. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it. And people really loved it. There was no really kids and family business at the time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, cartoons were just an advertisement for products. And there was no live action kids television, which for the most part, from a writing standpoint, is truly horrendous anyway. So I ended up going back and doing things. And um, uh, I started going and doing a lot of development for people because there was a lot of development at the time and people liked my work. So like one year I developed 12 shows the year my daughter, our daughter Olivia was born. And um, at the time the animation business started opening up again and uh, I had some fans and I just did the same thing I did initially. I came in and said, what do I need to do to get a show? And I wrote some stuff and Warner Brothers animation. Well, first of all, I guess it was what used to be Fox Family slash Saban, but it was really Fox Family, um, asked me to write, to write something up for a screensaver of a dog that they wanted to turn into a, a kid's animated show. <clears throat> so I wrote four pages up and they sold 80 episodes of it off it. They made a so, show off of a screensaver dog? Yeah, it, I, made, I made an animated show off a screensaver. I wrote another animated pilot <laughs> from, um, from a video game character. I've written movies from books. I've written, I wrote an animated movie, or at least the first draft of one from a comic book. I've kind of done every form of translation there is to do. I, you know, I worked in the game business for kids for a long time. I worked at Henson Interactive at Disney Interactive. So I took a lot of their classic characters and, and wrote them into games. I, I've done a ton of interactive work. And so I kind of done everything. <clears throat> and um, at any rate, they sold 80 episodes off of it and, and it made them a lot of money. Because I think they probably robbed the companies they were working with, Clint Classic, Saban style. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so it got me an overall deal at, at that company. And I remember making them put the money in escrow so they couldn't steal it from me. And, um, <laughs> and then I did that. And then it basically was just a springboard to going to other animation companies and other places. Because I always went back and forth between live action and animation and kids and family stuff. And just <clears throat> creating shows, running shows some of which never saw the light of day, a bunch of which did. I think at this point I have run um, or, you know, produced slash story editing. In the animation business, story editing is sort of the head writer. Um, okay. I guess 13 or 14 animated shows. And um, I've developed, I mean, God knows how many. I mean, 
it's almost a joke at this point how many yeah. I, I've developed for people. And so currently, um, what I'm doing is I'm uh, working on a couple of movies with a writing partner, a super talented guy I've been friends with for years. Um, we're, we're, we're developing, we're writing the third draft of, um, an, the, you know, the Night at the Museum franchise? Yeah. We're, we're, we just turned that into an animated movie for Disney Plus. And then we're, we're rewriting um, uh, a version, uh, you know, another uh, rendition of the Ice Age franchise for them. And then I'm also developing, um, more or less finished developing the first round of an animated show about um, endangered animals, which is surprisingly kind of funny. It's about a group of really super weirdo endangered animals, like the oddball ones. Oh, that sounds like fun. And they come to the big city to make it, and they're super weirdos. It's called, it's called On the Edge. And if you want to direct your viewers to something important, okay. uh, you can direct them to a woman named Beth Blood, okay. who um, it runs a thing called The Edge Project. Mm -hmm. And she's uh, put millions of dollars with her husband into protecting biodiversity. And awesome, awesome uh, philanthropic woman uh, who, who does these things. And um, so I went to Miami a few weeks ago and we sold it to, well, a month ago or two months ago now, we sold it to the Discovery Channel. Of course, then this whole crazy nightmare of COVID hit. So it's now, you know, sort but of- isn't, isn't animation like, kind of like the thing now though? I mean, isn't that one of the things Well, you know, the thing is, you? animation is the thing now because no one can make live action, right? right? So, so it is, for me, um, I started doing animation. It's funny about lifestyle choices. I remember this room used to be my office and it became my son's room before he moved on to Chicago and a little much cooler life. And um, he's uh, a, right. yeah, what? He's a musician. Yeah, he's an awesome kid. He's still in undergraduate school, but he's in a professional oh. orchestra already and he's, he writes his own music and uh, he's in a band. He's just a great, great kid. So at any rate, what happened was when he was born, you know, Olivia was too smart to play sports. So yeah. she wasn't interested. <laughs> and, but, you know, I live in this really, really uptight, a uh, little red state called Westlake Village. And, uh -huh. uh, and uh, you know, the dads were pretty insane about sports. And I was like a pretty yeah. serious athlete, but I'm like, you know, really a good sport. And it's all about what you learn through sports, so forth and so on. So I couldn't really leave my son alone with these dads because he wanted to play sports. So I started running animated shows because at the time I could run them out of my bedroom office. So once again, it was a lifestyle choice. And I did that for years. So, so um, I coached like, you know, I don't know, I coached like, three teams a year for eight years. Plus it was an Indian guides chief and an Indian princess chief for the YMCA really? for those, for those things. And, and I, I basically, my life's about my kids and my family. And, you know, so, so I basically curtailed my whole business um, to be a dad, you know, yeah. and to be a husband. And um, then the only time I ever had to go to an office was when I started working at Nickelodeon, because when I ran the fairly odd parents and tough puppy and other shows for them, Nick is a big time company. So they have staffs. So I had a staff of up to eight people, you know, so I had going to the office a lot of days there. Mm -hmm. um, but prior to that, you know, um, I was just freewheeling. Like, I, you know, I'd surf all day on Wednesday, then, you know, work on days when people were surfing, you know, and I just- Like the I ultimate flexible job. Doesn't seem like it would be, but it is. Now, I want to ask you- make it that. Um, okay, so my question is, you kind of hit this, this industry running. Like you hit the ground running. You're just like, hey, here's the scene. Uh, right. Yeah, you went to film school. Um, yeah, but useless. it sounds like you learned on the job. Yes. How did you learn about structure? Is all this stuff kind of built in when you go in to start writing? Do people say this is the way it has to go? How did you learn this stuff on the job? Well, it, that, you know, that's a huge conversation. We should probably yeah. do interview part two on, on actual writing. <laughs> but I would love to hear a little nuts and bolts about, about that, about like structure, yeah, okay, how so you what structure happened things. Is, what happened was process. 
I, um, I think I just learned by um, watching so much, you know? Uh, I just watched television, but I, I loved movies. I, I really loved movies, especially. Yeah. And so what happened was, you know, I think I just got an inherent sense, an instinctive sense of how scenes worked. And then when I first started working, I started reading scripts. So, you know, you read a script, you see how a scene works, you see how there's a, you know, how exposition works, which is one of the hardest things about writing. And you sort of learn, you know, I, I'm sort of, I love to learn things. Like when I was in college, I took something like 15 different core settings. I studied anthropology, psychology, sociology, urban geography, uh, you know, literally yeah. everything, philosophy. I was a speech major, I did everything. I love learning things, I love breaking things down. It fascinates me. So I started looking at things and I said, okay, so what's going on in the scene? There's, there's what do you have to pay attention to? There's pace, there's character, there's story, there's tone, you know, at the very least, right? Yeah. And so, you know, at first it had to become, it had to be in my head. I had to write all that down and kind of go through and go, is this in the right tone? Is the character, what's happening with the character? Is the story moving forward? Um, you know, is the pace moving forward? Is there, is there a setup in a scene below? Then there's the subtle um, art of exposition. How am I getting information so out? So exposition, just to explain to some people that might not, might not know, um, uh, exposition is basically you're telling people the information they need to know about the story, about the world. That's the right. Story. And a lot of times, especially like in the pilot, it's kind of difficult to do because you've got to explain all the different characters, their relationship, and you've got to get the thing that kind of hooks them to, that's to move right. forward with it. Yeah. That's right. And that's why some, form of, of some forms of television are so easy to write, like procedurals, right? Anybody, I'm telling you, you can take anyone in your audience right now, anyone, and you could give them a few months, and if they had an agent, they could write a procedural. Because all they do in a procedural is they basically say, here's what happened, hit the crime scene, here's what we think, here's what we're going to do. And yeah. there's no other form of writing you can do that in, right? Isn't there kind of a middle part where it's like everybody thinks it's one person and then it's the other person or something Yeah, well, like that's that? a red herring. That's yeah. a red herring. And that takes some criticism. That takes some abilities. Style. But the first part, yeah. exposition is one of the hardest parts of writing and not making it on the nose is tricky. So at any rate, yeah, so I just figured it out and then I just worked at it, you know? And, um, you know, I'm an intense person. And mm -hmm. I have high standards for myself. Yeah. So, you know, I was just telling a kid, I gave some notes on a pilot he wrote the other day. I told him that when I wrote pilots and I wrote a bunch of them, I would sometimes take three days to write the first two sentences of a pilot. Because my point of view was the first sentence, the main character spoke and the response to that and his reaction to it had to set up exactly the character, where he was at and the world he lived in and the tone of the, of the, of the world. And, and so, you know, that's not easy to do, but, 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 you know, writing is hard, but um, there is craft. And I know a lot of writers who have literally no creative talent, none, who got very rich because they, they got, a, they have an amazing craft, you know, they're model builders, they put things together. And a lot of feature writers fall into that category. And then there are people who are just um, more on the sort of creative side, which I am more so. I just have ideas and, you know, ideas yeah. for characters and ideas for shows, ideas for stories. And it's just a different way of working. And of course, you have to have both to some degree. But um, I saw you in an interview about the odd, Fairly Odd Parents. And you said right. that the great thing about that show was it was like a bucket that you could throw jokes into. And I yeah. think that meant, to me, that meant it had a very specific structure. So yes. it was like already there and you could just throw jokes in there and it wouldn't like break the bucket, you know? It was a fun bucket. It was fun, basically bucket, bucket like, of fun. how many crazy fun ideas, smart ideas can you have and jam them into a single script and Butch would just go, the more the better. He loved it, you know, because yeah. he had to do everything before I got there. And I, I remember an episode I did as an experiment in the last, second to last season I was there, at uh -huh. the second to last year I was at Nick, where I actually 
had five storylines in the start in the first four pages. I, I had some season with a couple of people that had written sitcoms and written hour television. They said, this is insane. And I yeah. said, I'm doing this to show you what you can do with this show. You had five storylines for Fairly Odd Parents, which is like a 15 minute episode show. 12 and a half minutes. 12 and a half minutes. And, and so we got to the record, right? Yeah. And everyone is on the floor laughing. Yeah. And the writers start laughing. Everyone starts laughing. And I said, you have to look at the form. Yeah. You can't just come into situations knowing the way to do something. You have to look at the show, the story, the form. I've written interactive stuff. I've written 11 minute squash and stretch stuff. I've written action movies. You have to, you have to respect the form and then you have to milk the form for whatever you can do best with it. You know, that's, yeah. that's part of the fun challenge. Big well, writer. okay, Fairly Odd Parents, basically he had these fairy godparents, yeah. who were goldfish, right. and then he would ask, make a wish. There was a little kid. His parents were kind of like distracted. He had a babysitter. They would be, he would basically ask them, you know, I wish that I was older or whatever, and then it, and then it would happen and it would play yeah. out and it would always be like a disaster. But that yeah. was basically the structure of it, right? The, the structure of the show was, I always said it was, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, figurative and literal wish fulfillment fantasy for kids. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and basically, yeah. And, and the show had gotten, uh, it, it gotten, not, I'm not gonna say it's gotten stale, but it had gotten repetitive. It you was know, like seven, before, seven seasons? How many seasons did even, that go? Even more, even, even more. more. But when I came in, I basically, I basically, I basically, with, with Butch's blessing, redeveloped the show. I took the, the I, I took the parents and took them from being kind of mean, comically so, yeah. to being clueless and adult children, which was, I, everybody thought was funnier, including Butch. Yeah. And then I took characters that were super funny and um, I put them in episodes together and figured out ways to do it. And then I also, um, you know, I also basically, I created new characters. Like when, when I went to go do the show, they had a baby fairy named Poof, who was a little brown, a little round fairy. Mm -hmm. My daughter was a little kid at the time, but she's, she's a genius. And I said to her, I need a new character. Right. I want to I walk in with a new character. And she said, well, there's no, there's no baby anti-fairy who'd be an enemy to this character. So we created a character named Foop, which is Foop spelled backwards, who's a square baby with, with, a, with a, a villain with a, with a pencil mustache and who's a monster. Yeah. And he's like, uh, a, he's like an evil, evil kid with a little baby with an English accent. So, so, so yeah, I did new things and Butch let me do it and I had yeah. fun. And Butch, Butch created the show, right? Yeah, he did. He created yeah. the show, um, and uh, he never really got his fair due at Nickelodeon, to be to be honest. I mean, he created the show, which was a hit with kids, and they gave him six episodes, four episodes, ten episodes, and you know he went back and forth, and did other things. But when I when I came, um, you know, we got lucky. We had an executive, this guy named Rich Magianis, who fought very hard for the show, still a friend of mine, and he got SEMA and the people in New York to give a big pickup, and then we created a show called Tough Puppy, uh, mm -hmm. which starred Jerry Trainer, who was a Kid Star, which uh, did really well on the network. And so as a result, we got a little more clout. And then at a time, I was overseeing both shows at the same time. So we delivered a script for Tough Puppy and a, and a script for Fairly Odd Parents literally every week. Oh, wow. So how yeah. did you, I want to ask you this too. When you go to pitch a show, how do you usually present a show like that? Like, do you just describe it? Do you have a, like a book? Do you have a script? No, you, 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 you mean any it? show or do you mean, yeah. a, mean like well, that? Well, a show like, let's go with a show like that, like a, 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 a kid's show for Nickelodeon. Like if you were going to- Right, right, it. okay. Well, I, I think you just, you just, I mean, what I do is I go in, well, there's also, there's a state of mind that, that I think you need to get into first. And I, yeah. I say this because I pitched so many things from the time I was really a kid. I mean, yeah. I pitched when I was, when I was really young, I was in the room, 
happened with networking, you know, like network heads, heads of movie studios, because my brother was already a big writer at the time. And, you know, he didn't like pitching. Um, so he let me do it all. And so, you know, it, but, you know, these were serious dudes. You know, they were yeah. like people who ran companies. And what I learned after the first pitch, when I felt a little bit intimidated, because, you know, I was in the room with somebody so powerful, I didn't like that feeling. So I decided that I would never go back and be intimidated again. And the way I did it was, I decided I like this idea and I respect you, but I don't care if you buy it or not. I'm going to write it whether you buy it or not. Yeah. And what was interesting about that was, because it's not a belligerent uh, sort of state of mind, it's a friendly, confident state of mind that's sort of positive about the idea. And what ended up happening was that sort of good feeling I had, the energy I, I had, sort of was infectious in the room. You know, yeah. people didn't feel like they were up against a writer. They, but they felt a little bit nervous that you were so confident in your idea and they know they don't know anything because they don't. Hmm. And so they start to say, ooh, he seems to really like this and he seems to know what he's doing and yeah. you're more inclined to sell something or to work with people. And on top of that, I'm malleable. So it's like, if you buy my idea, you tell me what you want to do with it and I'll tell you pretty quickly the cause and effect of that, right? It's yeah. like, if you'd like to do that, it would do this. And then people start to see, oh, we can toss ideas in and this person's malleable with his ideas and he's quick to tell you how it affects the idea. But you just go in and you just basically say, I love this idea. That's the first thing I always it's say. It's so interesting because what you're saying is you go in there with the confidence that you've got a good product, It has to be real. But you also can't have a chip on your shoulder about it when they no. say, oh, you know, we'd like that to be a woman or we'd like that to be a No, 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 no. Or whatever. You can't be like, no, no, no. That's, this is perfect the way it is. Yeah, you cannot well, be well, like that, but you have to be confident it. in it. Yeah. Right, you're selling it. It's so someone's buying it. Yeah. If they're buying it, it's there. It's there. I mean, you just have to let, you know, yeah. let, let just be real. So, so at any rate, no, I go in, the first thing I always say is I tell them how much I love the idea and why. Yeah. Sometimes I'll say, you know, maybe a little bit intellectually why I love the idea. Um, and then I just go to and I'll say, you know, okay, so there's, you know, you know that, for instance, in the, in the kids business, they talk about a couple of things. They talk about aspirational situations, which are something every kid would want, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and um, so if I were pitching Fairly Odd Parents, um, I would say, this is the ultimate aspirational kids cartoon. It's a, yeah. it's a figurative and literal wish fulfillment fantasy about a kid who has, who's a normal kid, he's an average kid, he's not, a, he's not totally a train wreck, but, but he suffers all the same indignities and injustices that every kid you know, suffers and that they feel they suffer. Now mm -hmm. we're pitching it now, I would talk about fairness because that's a big buzzword with kids now. And I would say, he gets these two fairies who will do anything for him. And of course the comedy is, he wishes for things and after a, you know, a very brief honeymoon period of the wish going well, you know, it hits the fan and uh, he has to somehow fix it, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and le maybe learn something along the way or maybe just has a good time. So you're basically kind of pitching an engine. It says, yes, oh, this is yes. what's going to happen, everything. And yes. it's gonna, this is going to run the show and we're going right. to be able to just That's keep right. coming up with stuff. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. It's, it's very astute because when you pitch shows, people will often say, well, it doesn't have to be high concept. In fact, we're looking for low concept shows. We're looking for shows that don't have an engine. Then if you pitch them a show that doesn't, they say, well, what drives the show every week? So, <laughs> so you, you have to be aware of what drives the show, even if it's something, um, even if it's something just emotional. Like I wrote up a couple of shows for, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with our daughter Olivia's work with, yeah. with her friend Sydney, but yeah. I, I wrote up a couple of shows for them in the, uh, the last day just to toss it out to them so they have more. This is more the Snapchat material. show. 
This is the yeah, Snapchat yeah. show. Yeah. Which is yeah. Uh, yeah. But Olivia so started funny. winning. She started winning um, film festivals in seventh grade. Oh really? She won oh. her first film festival in sixth grade. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we showed and a clip last you. week from it when we were uh, interviewing Diane, and yeah, it was just people just loved it. it so She's funny. a funny kid. She's a funny, yeah. talented kid. So so yeah, but even in, even in those sort of character-driven shows, <clears throat> there needs to be an engine. You know, like yeah. one show basically is is a show where they the two of them go back to high school. You know, sort of twenty-one Jump Street style. But what uh -huh. happens is the second they're in this high school, which has stupid over-the-top crime in it they're swept back into all the horrible injustices of high school <laughs> and become vigilantes to right high school wrongs. Oh, so they great. ignore all the crimes yeah. and they sort of take care of the girl that's not invited to the dance. You know yeah. what I mean? In a really belligerent, over the top, psycho funny way. And, and uh, you know, it's like, you can see that, Jay. You go, okay, I get it. Yeah. I get what the show's about. Do you ever, um, how do you generate creative ideas? Do you ever find yourself in writer's block or do you? Are you no, because what happens is, and you know this, like what, what you do, um, you might hear something on the news and say, that would be an interesting kind of person to interview, right? Yeah, yeah. When you're a, a, a psychologist, you might see somebody do something crazy and say, well, that's interesting. I wonder why they do that. Yeah. You know, as a writer, you, 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 you have it all. You see things on the news. You see something, do, do something crazy. Somebody do something crazy. You know, you, you hear some crazy story and you go, that's kind of a funny idea. Yeah. You know what, what ideas are like all around you. They're not necessarily just in your head. Oh, no, no, they're all they're around you. Yeah. I don't think they're, I think they're everywhere. And I think you take That's what I think when people get concerned about that kind of stuff is because they don't realize it's not just you. It's no. you in the world. There's just oh, ideas yeah, it's everywhere. Your, it's, your, it's your relationship to the world, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it can be your upbringing. It can be your parents. It can be any experience you've had that you want to put a spin on, you know, but it can also just be the things you see, you know, writers, Writers and I think creative people, and I honestly think everybody's a creative person, yeah. you know? But I think that they're, they're sponges, you know? They're fascinated with, 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 with that. And for me, I'm, I'm personally fascinated with psychology and people. I'm gonna go back to school and two things I'm gonna do next to my life is I'm gonna consult for people and yeah. help them creatively, um, you know, professionally. Yeah. And the other thing is I'm gonna help people psychologically because I've studied a lot of psychology. This go back makes so much sense. Yeah, um, but, well, but see, you can't really help people artistically if you can't help them psychologically because I think that's 90% of the game is getting your yeah, head it's, right. It's like sports. Oh, it's you got to get your head right. 5% of the game. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, the thing is, I'm fascinated by people. My mother was fascinated by people. And when I was little, she would take me out with her and we would go to lunch and she would say, I wonder who those people are. Do you think that's the secretary and someone else's husband? What, what, and I, I started to go, that's interesting. Who are people? What, you know, yeah. what makes that person tick? What makes this person tick? Yeah. And then I, I studied a bunch of psychology. I was in graduate school studying family systems for about a year. And then I had to stop because I was just doing too much work to keep going and I'm going to go back. And yeah. I, I figured out how families work and how complicated they are and how oh my what prisons they can be, but what springboards yeah. to freedom they can be and how yeah. powerful family dynamics are. And, and, and I learned all about, you know, a little more about individual psychology and why people do what they do and what makes a narcissist and you know what and and it's never what's on the surface you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's 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 an angry person is a person that doesn't like themselves yeah. a greedy person is a person who has no confidence there, mm -hmm. there's always a layer of, of of something underneath the outward you know sort of act you know actions of a person and and and, and so that really helps with writing, you know, so, so, I'm so sure. I, I think, think as a writer, you probably either have to know something about psychology or you have to know something, uh, or you have to be an actor, which is somebody who yeah. studies psychology as it is yeah. <laughs> to come yeah. at yeah. it or, like that. 
or just have instincts. You know, a lot of people I found, you know, they write one thing, you know, like they have something they do and they do it forever. For me, yeah. because I've written so many different kinds of things, um, I really need sort of a broad perspective. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, even those big time creators, right? Yeah. They, they make one show yeah. and then that's what they yeah. do. You know, and, and, and like, you know, it's um, amazing that the, the amount of work that you've cranked out in your life and, and uh, the amount of creativity that you've had for decades and decades and decades in different genres. Yes. Because it, it, I, I, I know a lot of writers and a lot of times writers can get very myopic on what they do and they can get hard. also very myopic on the structure and the way they structure things because they, they, they kind of have to have something to grab onto, but sometimes yeah. they grab too hard. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, it's really, it's, it really is a difficult thing to do. And, and the thing is that, um, you know, um, we talked about this last time we just talked personally, you know, over the years, I had to develop a really uh, bulletproof uh, sort of creative process so I wouldn't get burned out. And mm -hmm. it happened when I was working on a show for the show I sold from the screensaver. The very mean people at Saban said to me at the time, they said, um, you need to write 80 final drafts in a, in a year. Wow. And I said, that's impossible. So <laughs> I, went, I went to a therapist and yeah. uh, he basically said to me, you just need complete autonomy from their needs. Uh, and that'll at least open the door for you. Yeah. And I said, that's interesting. And I already was a fairly autonomous person. Yeah. So I'm, like, I'm going to try that. And the second I stopped caring, I didn't stop caring if the work got done. I stopped worrying about them being mad yeah. or what yeah. they thought of it. The second mm -hmm. that was out of my head, I suddenly had like 60% more energy. And, and what I did was I just started putting together the pieces of this sort of creative process over the year, which I've now taught to a bunch of kids. And I told you this before, it's confidence. Yeah. And the way you get it is basically you look at everything in the, your whole life that you didn't think you could do that you did. Mm. You, you pulled off and you've read a list of it. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you got a date with somebody you didn't think you could date, you passed the class, you didn't think it doesn't matter. You make a list. So you start saying, oh, I can do things I don't think I can do. I have a history yeah. of that intensity which has to go out on the on what you're doing and never back in on you because it shuts you down you have to have some fun it, you have to have fun with creativity and i think with everything to some degree even if it's acerbic fun yeah uh you know then there's autonomy which really is split into two things it's like you know what i'm not going to worry about what other people think of me or this mm -hmm. and i'm not going to worry about what i get from it i'm not doing it to get something i'm doing it to give to it you said something really interesting in that interview that I watched where you said old people, they, they are always looking for what they get out of it. And young people That's are right. always looking for something else. I forget what you said. Well, well I, think, I think when people start out, they're worried what people are going to think, right? Yeah. And when people have gotten some work, it's all about what's in this for me. What's in this for me? What am yeah. I going to get? Am I getting enough? Are they giving me enough? You know? Yeah. And yeah. that's poison. It's equal parts poison. And then finally, I think you have to do the thing that I think is very hard for really smart people to do. Mm -hmm. And it's you have to be optimistic. You have to sit for 10 <laughs> seconds. Because all of those things to. come into your head of like, oh, this bad thing could happen and that bad thing could go happen. Go through the checklist. You go through the yeah. checklist. By the time you get through the first group, you just sit for a second. And all you need to do to be optimistic is for 10 seconds, you r randomly and vaguely picture the situation you're in working out great for you and everyone else. You picture yourself happy and everyone else happy. You don't do any details at all in your head. And then you just start to write or you start to do whatever you right, go to a you meeting, do. you go on a date. It works for everything. And what I learned afterwards, after I built this up, I've never been burned out. You know, really? I, I've written, I think it, 
I think at Nickelodeon, well, in the last 10 years, I've been, I think, I, th I think I've overseen Broken the Stories for 700 episodes of animation. And, and you know, and, and so it's like, it's yeah. like, it's insane. I know it's, and now even I recognize it as insane. But, but the thing is that, um, you know, if you're in the right state of mind, you, you know, you're, what's burning you out isn't the work. What's burning you out is you. See, yeah. you and your head's burning. I think out. that's the thing that makes you tired. Yeah. Is oh, all battling with sure all that negativity that comes into your head. Oh. I find that certain, there are certain times of day where that comes in stronger than yeah. other times of day. Yes. So I have to be like wary of that and I have to have tools to kind of get myself out of it. Yeah, you really do. You really yeah. do. And, and the thing is that one of the, um, what I learned in, in, in after the fact was that <clears throat> what I was really doing was a form of boot, like Zen Buddhism. Yeah. It was really that, but I had just broken it all down. And then on top of it, um, I learned uh, to meditate. Mm -hmm. I, I did TM and, and you know, I, I, I can't say anything about TM uh, here because you know they may sue me or something. Um, but 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 I don't know about the TM structure of yeah. the organization. But I can yeah. tell you this: the meditation is uh, is pure genius because you don't think and it's not guided and you're not focused on breathing. You're repeating a nonsense word in your head that they say is Sanskrit, and you're repeating in your head and you and you go away. Wow. So you. You go away. You go away no matter how badly you do it, no matter how well you do it. Really? You go away three times in 18 minutes. I have never done that transcendental meditation. I meditate every day, but it's, I don't, I don't yeah. have experience with that. I'll have to, I have to try it. I would say it's incomparably better. Really? Than anything I've done. Yeah, no, no, because it's very simple. It's not, not mystical. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you're repeating a word in the back of your head that isn't a word, your brain will drift off. Do you think you could do that with just any nonsensical word? Or do yes. you have to get the one, oh, pay the money and get the one that the they want? the word may subconsciously have meaning to you. Really? Well, yeah, if the word has any meaning to you, like unless you said, I'm going to do Coca-Cola, oh. you might start thinking about yeah. Coca-Cola. The, yeah. word the words they give you mean Don't nothing. have any meaning at all. They're sounds. Oh, okay. You know, they're like, woo-ha, you know? Yeah. They're like a sound. And, and so at any rate, um, that's actually pretty amazing. And what yeah. happened was I was surfing one day when I was, I would go surfing when I'd be really tense. I was, you know, raising two kids and mostly supporting a family mm -hmm. you know in this crazy business i'm in with people getting fired every day when i was at nickelodeon every night they'd fire a whole new group of people because biocom was having trouble they used to call it the orange wedding every friday night oh, referencing no. the red wedding on yeah. game of thrones game and uh and, and you know I, i'm you know you got to keep yourself going you got to be a focused dad you got to be together you can't be broken you got to turn out huge amounts of work. Did they call it the orange wedding because Nickelodeon's an orange building or something? Yeah, because well, okay. their color is orange, yeah. yeah their color so, is orange. So I would be surfing and I'd go and I'd be really, you know, tense. And I'd get one 10 second wave and I'd feel completely better. Really? I'd be elated. And I said, what's going on there? And I realized I just shut off my mind. You can't shut off your mind when you sleep because you have, you know, dreams about the things that are troubling you psychologically. Yeah, I had but a dream so last no night about Seth Rogen. Yeah, there's no way to shut your mind off. Yeah. But, 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 but an activity that completely takes your focus does it. And like, yeah. if you're looking at a wave that's changing under your feet the whole time, that'll do it. Yeah. The golf does it for some people because of the mm -hmm. in intense focus of hitting the ball right. Yeah. But if you do the, you know, uh, the timbre of meditation, wow. 17, 18 minutes goes by and it's like you've been on a psychological vacation. Wow. That is, you know, the more people I talk to, the more creative people I talk to, the more they talk about meditation. It's, well, it's, it centers you. You're in the moment. And, and, you know, you got to be in the moment. If you're in the past, 
you know, you're, you're, if, if you're thinking about the past, you're in the past. If you're thinking about the future, you're usually worried about something that's going to happen. If you're in the past, you're regretful maybe of something that's going to happen or you wish was happening now and isn't. And both things take you out of the present, which is the only place you're really alive and connected, the only place you're really available to yourself and other people, and the only place you can really fully create because you're there, you know? Did you uh, discover this with your family? Did you teach your family this? Did your family teach you this? Uh, uh, how is it as a family growing as artists? I know Diane and I talked about this for a while, but it seems like you guys have the right formula over there. Well, it's interesting. You know, it, it's, it's once again, it's a, it's a lot of things at once. Um, my son's very naturally Zen and centered. Mm -hmm. And I realized Olivia is more like all over the place and like, you know, like mm -hmm. me, just bing bong, bing bong. Yeah. And Diane's in her own world in another separate, wonderful way. Yeah. But Nick was very centered. And I knew, I just, you can't tell, I adore my kids. Yeah. And so to connect to Nick, I had to be centered. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you couldn't just, you couldn't, he didn't, you couldn't do small talk with Nick. So I went, okay, you know, this is where I gotta be. Then what happened was, like I say, I, I, I figured out through surfing, uh, you know, sort of a way to be connected a different way. And then Diane was really instrumental in my creative process because um, she's a person who just does things. And I was a person who would overthink them for too long and take them apart before I did them. My wife said so, that too, she just does things. I'm like, what are you doing? And then she's like, yeah, just, and it's great. that's it's the great. chase. And I learned to just do things from her and then I figured out my own creative process really as a vehicle to survive. It was like, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to be miserable. So that's just it. Yeah. That's not happening. I'm yeah. not going to take the only one and only life I know I have for sure and be unhappy. That's not yeah. happening. Yeah. So if I've got, I'm going to do this job, I'm going to find a way to do it as happily as I can. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of goodwill that goes towards the job. There's, you know, helping people makes me feel good. Uh, taking care of my family made me feel good. But then you had to be in a certain headspace to take the constant grind of the job. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I built it up that way, you know, and then that's the way it was just like a, um, you know, it was a way to fix a problem. It was like, well, if I'm going to do this at this volume of work for untold years, I've really got to find a way to overcome the sort of bitter writer syndrome and burnout that people naturally get. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. All right, I think that that is a good place for us to end. I don't want your battery to run out over there. And I also uh, think that it's a very positive thing for us to end on. Sure. Thank you so much for being here. This, uh, this is Ray De Laurentiis. He is a, a font of creativity and also an inspiration for a lot of people. And thank you for sitting down with us today. And uh, uh, go forth and prosper. Thank you. I hope I made some sense. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, you definitely made sense. Okay. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on, man. Wow. That was pretty heavy stuff. Uh, really, really useful, important information. Thanks, Ray, for being on the program. Uh, you know, it's something I think all of us can use. Wow. A lot, lot to think about. Got to do that uh, meditation. Seems to be the thing to do. Uh, I'm going to end the show now. I, I'm really fortunate. Uh, we're really fortunate. Uh, Alessandra, a friend of mine, Italian friend of mine, and uh, Giovanni Baglioni, who's a, who's a virtuoso guitar player. Alessandra Casamato. Casamato. I don't know why I can't pronounce it. But anyway, here they are singing a George Harrison song that you all love. 
I notice it's turning 